Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit therapynotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at therapynotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on anger management. And today we're going to be talking about doing a multi-session protocol. And I tried to identify how many sessions, but that really depends on how active your participants are and whether you're doing a 90, 90 minute or a 60 minute group. So this could be anywhere from nine sessions to 15 sessions, depending on, depending on your group and also just kind of your style. We're going to learn about anger and its functions, explore events and cues, develop an anger control plan, learn about the aggression cycle and how to change it, review the ABCDEs and thought stopping. We'll explore assertiveness and conflict resolution skills, alternatives for expressing anger, relaxation inter interventions, and how past learning can influence current behavior. So those are the nine overarching topics. But like I said, if you have a really active group that likes to talk, or if you want to break it up because you're only doing a hour long group, you may have some of these units that are multi sort of things. Session one, or the first topic, is learning about anger. A lot of our clients don't really understand what anger is. They feel it, you know, just like all of us feel anger, but they may not really know where it's coming from. So we want to help them understand that anger is an emotion triggered by a threat that prompts the fight, which is the aggression, or the flight, which is the fear reaction. It is our body's way of telling us, hey, there might be a threat. That's it. Hostility refers to a set of attitudes, thoughts, and judgments that motivate aggressive behaviors. Hostility are all those threat-oriented cognitions that we hold on to. And you, you notice I'm going to try really hard not to use the word negative today because anger is a natural feeling. Anger can be a positive feeling because it motivates us to protect ourselves. So I'm going to try not to use the word negative. I'm going to start try to use 
alternative phrases. But when we have those threat-oriented cognitions, we can become hostile. We can become tense. We can become ready to defend ourselves. Aggression is the behavior that is intended to protect oneself by causing harm or injury to another person or damage to property. This is part of the fight or flee. So hostility is the thoughts that are happening that are getting that threat response system ramped up, that HPA axis gets it going. Aggression is the actual behavior that is implemented in order to protect yourself. One of the things that we want people to start understanding or learning about is the fact that just because we think there's a threat, just because we feel angry for a minute, doesn't necessarily mean there is a threat. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we are taking our past experiences and anticipating danger when maybe one doesn't exist. Or we're assuming we know facts in a situation that we don't actually know, and we're getting angry and all bothered by something because we're assuming too much and there may not actually be a threat if you think back to your basic cognitive behavioral therapy we talk about the cognitive triangle when we have thoughts about something if we have we'll use happy for a minute when we have happy thoughts it generally triggers positive proactive behavior and happy feeling when we're telling ourselves it's going to be a great day we tend to feel happier when we have unpleasant thoughts when we have thoughts that are hopeless helpless uh, or angry thoughts that typically causes us to go into protective mode. So our behaviors tend to be more protective. We may be verbally aggressive. We may withdraw. We may be um, more physically aggressive or guarded or irritable. And when we're thinking like that and we're behaving like that, how are we feeling? We are probably feeling like that. You can't sit there and tell yourself this is a hopeless situation and you are in danger and this is a threat and these people are after you and feel super happy at the same time if you're telling yourself that you're going to have those dysphoric feelings feelings are natural and i say this so many times during this curriculum because i don't want people to think that anger is a bad feeling what we do with anger can be good or bad the feeling itself is protected and we want to embrace that and go you know thank you brain for telling me that there might be a threat just like as i've mentioned so many times before the smoke alarm when the smoke alarm goes off it means there might be a fire but there might not be you know we have false alarms and smoke alarms another example that i've taken to using lately because people it, it's gross enough that people you know can relate to it and remember it is dog poop if you have dogs or if if you have small children you know you may have the same issue where you may be sitting down and reading your newspaper or something and all of a sudden you smell poop and you're like i smell some now that's kind of like the fire alarm that's kind of like getting angry or anxious that is your body your senses saying there might be a problem now it could be that the dogs or the kid just passed gas and it's no big deal you don't need to do anything but a bing but you still want to check that diaper or walk into the dining room and see if the dog left you a present because if you don't then that smell is going to continue to permeate the house and cause problems you know so think about think about it that way anger can be thought of like a noxious smell that's telling you you need to do something um one of the things that i was always so amazed with with our donkey 
is the fact that they seem to know what they need. You know, I read all these books before we got donkeys and my daughter read all these books about what you can and can't have in the yard and all this stuff that we had to, we had to donkey proof the yard and it sounds weird, but we did. And I was petrified because shrubs we had in our yard are toxic to donkeys and the vet came over and was doing their, you know, first checkup and everything. And I was freaking out and I was like, Dr. Shirley, you know, what am I going to do? How do I, what do I need to do to keep her from eating the legustrums? And he just kind of looked at me. He's like, feed her. I said, what? He said, yeah, donkeys smell things. And when they smell, you know, Things that are not good for donkeys smell noxious, and they won't typically eat things that are bad for them. So as long as she's getting enough food and she's not starving and looking for calories somewhere, chances of her eating something bad for her are pretty small. My point is, our noses alert us to situations in the environment that might be a threat. They can... Even our sense of of smell is there to protect us. Misperceptions. I already talked about the fire alarm. Uh, We have a, well, he's not a foster dog anymore. He's what we call a failed foster because I just couldn't possibly give him up. He earned a forever place in my heart. But his name's Brewster. And he is a boxer. And he is a big boxer. Um, And my son and his best friend were outside practicing martial arts with sticks and you know they were doing what they were doing they were having a good time but boo boo didn't understand this and he thought that elias was trying to hurt sean and he lost his ever-loving mind all the hair went up on his back and he started barking thankfully he was on a leash um so henceforth and forevermore when Elias has come over to the house. Not only is Brewster seeing Elias as a threat, but Elias is afraid of Brewster. So they're kind of feeding off of each other. But that initial experience was based on faulty information that, you know, there was no need to get all upset about it for Brewster. But he didn't understand that. Um, And there are lots of other examples you can do. And I encourage you with your group to go through situations and talk about times that they've had where they got all upset over something and realized, oh, there was nothing to get upset about. Um, The final example that I'll give you is domestic violence. If somebody has been in a domestic, domestically violent situation before, then when they see somebody talking with big gestures and being loud like I am and like I do, um, if they're just seeing that, they're not they don't know what's going on. They may think that I am angry because I am using, I am gesturing like crazy. And, you know, that's just, that's what I do. So they may get fearful because they think that something's going on that's not based on fact. They're making assumptions based on their old schema. Anger becomes a problem when it is felt too intensely, too frequently, or expressed inappropriately. When somebody is noticing things pretty much constantly, that's just triggering their anger and triggering their anger and pushing their buttons, that gets freaking exhausting. And yeah, they are going to be tired. They may feel hopeless and helpless. That HPA axis is just in overdrive, and that can be a problem. People need time to feel happy. People need to be able to feel safe, like there's no threat. And when you are angry, that is your body's way of telling you there's a potential threat. People need to free have times when they're free of that. Encourage your group to think, you know, and brainstorm. You know, I'm a fan of whiteboards. Uh, how anger affects them physically. And some of the things you want them to bring up are that anger impacts your 
even if it doesn't keep you from falling asleep, which a lot of times it will keep you from falling asleep as easily, um, it can disrupt your sleep because a lot of times when people have high levels of anger and anxiety, they tend to have more nightmares and bad dreams. So it interrupts the quality of their sleep and the restfulness. They wake up and they feel like they've, you know, had a really bad day. Anger keeps that HPA axis revved up, which means our serotonin levels, certain serotonin levels are going to be lower, which means our pain threshold may be lower. When we're angry, we also tend to be tense. You may grind your teeth, you may hold your tension in your neck or your back or get headaches, but generally when people have a lot of anger, they feel more pain. It can upset your gastrointestinal system. HPA axis, that fight or flight, your body is not taking time to digest. It's not rest and digest time. It's fight or flee. So everything's going to be sped up. You, people may have stomach cramps, you know, uh, uh, ulcers. They may have, you know, lots of other GI disturbances from anger. Think about a time when you have been really stressed out, whether it's been anger, anger or stress. And think about if it's had what kind of physical impacts it's had on you. And finally... My favorite one for right now is immunity. When our threat response system is activated, energy is diverted from our immune system. When you are angry a lot, not even all the time, when you're angry a lot, that causes your body to dump a lot of energy every time you get angry, which means it's borrowing, basically, from that immune system. Immune system tends to go down when we are under stress. Emotionally. When people are angry, ask your group, you know, when you're angry, what other feelings are you feeling? Because generally we don't feel just one. That may just be the tip of the iceberg. What else are you feeling? A lot of times people talk about feeling regretful when they're angry. They, they feel regret that they were short-tempered or irritable with people. They feel guilty for being snippy with somebody or for being in a bad mood. And they may feel helpless because they don't know how to break that cycle. If they don't understand that anger is simply a, you know, fire alarm, basically, to check to see if there's a problem and what they need to do to break that cycle, they may feel helpless. They may not have the distress tolerance skills that they need to deal with feelings when they happen, especially if it's something they have no control over. You know, there are a lot of people right now who are really angry. They're angry about what's going on. They're angry about, you know, lots of things. And I get it because they feel like their power is being taken away. They, they, they are angry about the unknowns because there's threats out there. However, there is nothing we can do about some of those things right now. And there, well, there are some things like wash your hands and everything. But in, in large part, you know, we can't get the answers any faster than we can get the answer. So people are going to have to have distress tolerance skills to deal with the perceived threat until they can find a way to either resolve it or let it go. Socially, have them think about how anger affects their relationships. Well, no duh. When you're angry, people don't usually want to spend a lot of time around you unless they are similarly angry and then you just feed off of each other. When you are an angry person, when you tend to hold on to that anger, when you tend to think negatively uh, about things, when you're angry, you're going to see the threats. You're not going to see the safety. You're not going to see the positives nearly as much as you're going to see the threats. Those are going to stick out like a sore thumb. So socially, 
you may interact with others in an irritable or dominating way in order to protect yourself. But instead of engendering mutual respect, a lot of times that creates a fear dynamic. People don't want to set you off and they tiptoe around you like they're on eggshells. When people are angry a lot, it can have a negative impact on their relationships because people around them may feel that they are either just, you know, they're always negative and they just don't want to be surrounded by that negativity, or they feel like the person who is angry is too volatile and they're afraid of setting them off. There's a lot of different reasons that anger can negatively impact a relationship, but encourage people to think about, you know, when you get angry or when you're angry a lot, how does that impact your relationship with your significant other, with your kids, with your best friends? A lot of times when people are angry, they withdraw which means they lose even more social support. Occupationally, how does anger impact the way you work with others and your ability to provide customer service? Spiritually, how does anger impact your sense of connectedness to others and your awareness of your impact on the world and the world's impact on you? And finally, environmentally, when you're angry, how does it affect your environment? Some people, when they get angry, break stuff. They put holes in walls or maybe they go through their, their knickknacks if they're angry at somebody and they throw away every reminder of that person. And then two weeks later, when the fight is over, they feel regret for throwing that stuff away. Encourage people to recognize that anger permeates your entire life if you let it. Anger initially has apparent payoffs. It releases tension. It can control people. When something happens and you get angry, that is your way of trying to regain control over the situation, trying to regain structure or safety. Okay, you know, I, I see where that might happen. In the long term, however, these payoffs often lead to negative consequences. Make a whiteboard, you know, just a brainstorm, brainstorm a list of the benefits and payoffs that anger has for people. You know, we wouldn't keep doing it if there wasn't some sort of benefit to it. The next thing to encourage people to consider is how anger might be a habit. Habits are things that we, that we do almost automatically. So in what ways is anger a habit? You know, if you get on social media or if you're talking to a friend and they say something you don't like and you immediately get angry and you react with that anger, with a whole litany of hostile thoughts and become aggressive in your behaviors because in the past when you've done that, then they've either acquiesced or come to see it your way or you've won somehow. We want to help people start using mindfulness to break their habit anger. Help people start using mindfulness to stop. When they feel angry, that's okay. Anger is a natural emotion. What you do with it, and I know I've said that already, but what you do with it is what's the problem. So when they start feeling angry, they need to be able to develop mindfulness tools to be able to stop and go, okay, I'm feeling angry. What am I angry about? Is this actually a threat to me in the present? Is this something that really makes any difference to me? And finally, what is the best response in this situation to help me achieve my goals? Uh, there are a lot of options for responses when you're angry. You can yell, you can throw things, you can punch things, you can get aggressive, you can drink, you can go to sleep. Generally, none of those are going to help you achieve your goals of health, happiness, and a and fulfilling relationship. I say generally. I mean, if you're being, you know, attacked by a mugger, that's a different story. 
But if you are getting angry over something you see on the news or angry over something that you see on social media or, or over something somebody said to you, you know, at work, is that actually a threat? You know, is that going to negatively impact your life in some way? Or is it their opinion? Did it, I mean, it could make your self-esteem sting for a minute. But ultimately, you've got to take that information, whatever it is that they said to you, and think, do I believe it? If you don't believe it, then it bounces right off. And, and helping people recognize that they have the ability to choose what they let negatively impact them and what they do something else. With. Have people identify anger control strategies that they've used in the past. The good one, you know, not hole punching or, you know. Out, outward aggression. We want to talk about anger control strategy. What have they done? And this can be going out for a cigarette. This can be drinking. This can be going to sleep, the journaling. This can be exercising. We're not saying whether they're good or bad. I just want to know what the strategies are that have worked at least for a little bit and helped them get back into their wise mind, help them kind of get out of that anger flood for a bit. And then talk about the ones that didn't work so effectively and why that might have been. So now you're starting to identify strengths that they have. What strengths and tools do they already have that they may be able to enhance to improve their anger management skills? After session one or three, you know, the first session you could actually do for three different sessions, but after you get through those, the homework is to encourage people to keep a log of their anger intensity over the week. Keeping a log helps them become more aware of their triggers and cues and see their progress. On the top of the page, put the date, you know, just regular old notebook paper, and then make three columns. The first column describes the episode, what happened. The second column, they rate the intensity. Was it mildly irritated, which would be a one? or enraged would be a four, and then everything in between, as you can see. And then how long did it last? Got over it quickly, or it ruined my whole day? You know, so you have, again, one, two, three, four. What we want is people to recognize how often they're getting upset, how intensely they're getting upset, and how long it's impacting their life. And gradually, as anger management starts to work, one or more of those dimensions is going to start to decrease. And it depends on the person, whether it's the intensity, the duration, or the frequency, which starts to dissipate first. You know, I've seen, I've seen it all over the place. But we do want people to notice maybe they're still getting upset 10 times a day. All right, that's a lot, and it's exhausting. However, if instead of being enraged every time, they just get irritated, well, score. Think about how much energy you're saving by only getting mildly irritated as opposed to dumping a ton of adrenaline every, 10 times a day. Um, and, and Lauren asked the question, can we talk a little bit about how people have, many times people have said that they are glad if people are afraid of them. And we want to go back to prior learning. And my guess would be, and you know, we have to look at in what ways does it benefit you if people are afraid of you as opposed to respecting you? And talk about the difference between fear and respect. Um, but there are a fair number of cases that I've seen where in the past people have been victimized. And because of their trauma history, they prefer to be in this position of dominance and engendering fear in others because 
if people fear them, they're not going to hurt them. And it's a safety protective mechanism. So we really want to go and think about what are the behaviors trying to communicate to us? Why is it that fear is beneficial as opposed to respect? And then starting to help the person move toward embracing relationships that are characterized by mutual respect and talk about how those look a little different, but how those also still give them a certain amount of control. And, and sometimes they like it and, and people are on both sides of the coin. Some parents will say, I want my kids to be afraid of me because then they're not going to act out. And other times parents are devastated if their children are afraid of them. But we want to look at what the behavior, how does the behavior benefit them? What's the behavior communicating? They may have been raised with, in a family where the message coming down from great-great-grandpa and great-grandpa and grandpa and, you know, on and on was children are supposed to fear adults. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So they may not think that there's anything wrong with that. That may be what they have been taught growing up. And we want to look at that and, and help them evaluate whether that is a value that they still want to hold on to. Good, great questions. And, and Maribel points out, anger and depression are kind of interesting because anger that's, is that fight or flee. But when we can't um, fight or flee, we end up developing the sense of learned helplessness, that nothing's going to change, and we start feeling hopeless and helpless. So anger and depression really are related. And <clears throat> pardon me. Some people believe that anger is um, depression turned outward. We take our sense of hopelessness and helplessness, and because we feel hopeless and helpless, we feel vulnerable. And when we feel vulnerable, we may become defensive. Totally makes sense. What for that person in that situation, are there aggressive behaviors or hostile thoughts saying or doing? How are those behaviors or thoughts protecting them better than anything else? And what other options might they have that we could try to develop? So in session two, we want to talk about identifying triggers, events, and cues. When people get angry, it's because they've encountered something that has made them feel threatened or provoked in some way, vulnerable. So they're trying to protect themselves. Have people brainstorm on, and I like doing this one because I want to encourage people. And generally when you have a group, people will go in kind of off the beaten path because, you know, yes, it can make you angry when someone is respectful. It can make you angry when it makes me angry when, and I generally go around the, the group and I have everybody complete that sentence. It makes me angry when. Once we've gone around the group one time, then a lot of times people are loosened up and they're also throwing out more things. I usually spend 10 to 15 minutes identifying situations that trigger anger and irritability. Some of the things that have come up in my groups, long wait to the doctor's office, traffic, a friend joking about a sensitive topic, a friend not paying back money, being wrongly accused of something. And it could be being wrongly accused of leaving dishes in the sink. It doesn't have to be something legal. Um, having to clean up after someone, having an untidy roommate, having a neighbor who plays the stereo too loud, being placed on hold forever, rumors being spread about you, having something stolen, people who are ungrateful, someone openly contradicting you, or not getting a promotion. So see, those are kind of all over the place, from roommate issues to job issues and everything in between. Um, I encourage you when you do this group, well, 
I like to sit down and write down for me things that have been my anger triggers in the past. So I know I have something to seed the pot with if I have to. But after each group, you know, add to your list of things that commonly come up. That way you have plenty of seeds in case you're doing this group and people are just kind of sitting there going, I don't know. I don't know what makes me angry. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, so you're giving them some ideas so they make sure they're looking at the whole thing. Many times, specific events touch on sensitive areas. These sensitive areas or red flags usually refer to long-standing issues that can easily lead to anger. It may remind you of a time when you were not in control or that you were rejected or you experienced death or loss or failure. Um, it's important to be sensitive to people um, when they get angry. If you're dealing with somebody and they get angry with you, thinking to yourself in what way did whatever I just say or do potentially make this person feel vulnerable? It's also important for the person who got angry to ask themselves the same thing. In what way did what just happened may make me feel vulnerable or threatened? Cues are indicators that you're getting angry and can be broken down into four cue categories. We have physical cues, how your body responds. So talk to, so they start brainstorming and noticing when you get angry, how does your body respond? Do they tense up? Do they get a tingly feeling in their hands? You know, what happens? Increased heart rate, tightness in their chest. What, what happens? Behaviorally. What do they do when they get angry? Do they start clenching their jaw, tightening their fist, raising their voice, glaring at others? What is it that they typically do? And they may not know right now, but we can start brainstorming these things and encourage them to pay attention over the next week. When you start to get angry, what, what did you do? What did you feel? What did you do? What did you, what emotions did occurred? Remembering that other feelings occur along with anger, including fear, hurt, jealousy, disrespect. There are a lot of emotions that go along with anger. And we may get to this in, in later slides. I can't remember, but honestly. But I talk to my clients about the fact that there are various cousins of anger. We have anger. We have rage. Jealousy is anger at other people for having something we want. Envy is kind of the same way. Regret is anger at ourselves for not doing something we should have or for doing something that we shouldn't have. Guilt kind of goes along with regret. We feel guilty. Um, that's anger at ourselves. So there are a lot of different um, permutations to anger, and there's a lot of different feelings that go along with anger. Remember, we talked earlier about the iceberg. Some people are not comfortable showing vulnerability. They're not comfortable showing fear or regret. So that is covered up by outward aggressiveness and helping people recognize the variety and the depth of their feelings or the breadth of their feelings is going to be really important. Cognitive cues that happen when you get angry, um, encouraging people to notice what are they telling themselves, like I'll fix her little red wagon or how dare he say that. Whatever voices that they hear, whatever thoughts that they have when they get angry, it's important for them to notice those because, you know, not everybody has the same cues in the same order. And if they notice they're having these hostile thoughts, it's important to be able to deal with them. Have people review their anger log from the prior week and identify common cues. When that happened, how did I feel physically? What did I do behaviorally? How did I feel emotionally? And what was I thinking? 
discuss with them strategies that they can use to become more aware of and deal with their cues. How can they notice when they're starting to get irritated and do something about it before it becomes full-fledged anger? In session three, you talk about vulnerabilities. Vulnerabilities are those things that make you more likely to respond with anger. And most of us are aware of our vulnerabilities, uh, but not everybody is. When people feel emotionally overwhelmed, irritable about something else, stressed out, or they feel vulnerable in some way, they may be more likely to respond with anger. If they're already feeling, you know, like they're at the brink, then other stressors could make them respond more strongly because they're trying to protect themselves. Cognitively, if you are in a negative frame of mind, if you are being a negative Nelly that day, and some days we just, we get in that negative mindset, that can encourage you to notice the threats in the environment more, which increases levels of stress and fear, which can also trigger additional anger or make you more likely to respond with anger because it feels like there are threats coming in from every side. Physically, when you have low blood sugar, when you're under the influence of alcohol, you've had too much caffeine, when you're in pain, when you're sick or you haven't had quality sleep, all of these things cause that HPA axis to rev up, which can dump glutamate and norepinephrine, increase your agitation, which can make you more likely to react more strongly with anger. And socially, being in situations that make you feel more on edge or around people that tend to trigger anger or be negative themselves. Have people think about their personal vulnerabilities and how they can best prevent or mitigate them. Not everybody, for example, gets super irritable if they've had too much caffeine. I tend to be somewhat goofy <laughs> if I've had caffeine. Other people, they it triggers their anxiety, triggers that HPA axis too much, so they do become agitated. And when you're already agitated, when you add on to agitation, you just step right up to anger. Homework. Um, have people review their homework from the prior week and examine the highest number they reached in intensity and in duration and see what triggered that episode. You know, let's look at your worst episode from last week. What were the cues associated with the behavior? Physically, behaviorally, emotionally, and cognitively, what was going on? What strategies did you use to avoid reaching a 10 on the anger meter? One being super relaxed, 10 being enraged. What strategies did you use? Are there particular threat themes when you go over your entire log? Are there particular themes, particular things that seem to set you off more frequently? And looking back over each day, if you had a day that was particularly good versus a day that was particularly bad, what was the difference in your vulnerabilities that day? You know, what was different on the day that was really good and what may have been existing that made you more vulnerable on the day that was bad? In session four, people are going to develop an anger control plan. An effective plan should include both immediate and preventative strategies. So we want to be able to prevent the vulnerabilities as much as possible, but also have an emergency plan. Immediate strategies. These are to be used when somebody is feeling agitated or angry, you know, anything along that spectrum. Encourage them to take a personal time out. Have them think about, okay, when are some times that I might need to use this time out? And I can tell you from personal experience, there is a, personal, a particular family member 
that tends critical. And whenever that family member comes to visit, they always have something critical to say. And that I start getting vulnerable before they even come over because I know I'm bracing. I'm just waiting for them to say it. And that doesn't help anything. That just makes me more more vulnerable. Um, When that person comes over, though, I know that when they're talking, and I believe that they're not trying to be malicious. That's just the way they are. When they're talking, if they start grating on my nerves, basically, if I notice that I'm starting to get irritated, that's when I take a timeout. And for me, sometimes I excuse myself and go to the bathroom. Sometimes I I typically am the one that does all the cooking. So I'll excuse myself and go into the kitchen and start cooking something just so I can get a break and, you know, let my adrenaline kind of drain off a little bit because and remind myself that the person is not intentionally being ugly. That's just the way they were raised. That's the way they are. Their mother was like that and, you know, they were raised that way. You can distract with activities like doing something like cooking or listening to music. Focus on creating opposite emotions or taking a mental vacation. Going back to your dialectical behavior therapy distress tolerance skills. Encourage people to use thought stopping. I know that's another DBT distress tolerance skill. Talk about what are some thought stopping statements that people can use. What can they tell themselves? I I stick with the simple. I go, no, I'm not going to think about that right now. And sometimes my family thinks I'm completely nuts because, you know, I will be doing that and just I'll put the hand out and they're not even around and they just hear me in there saying no not going there right now and they're like what did you say something to me I'm like no I'm talking to the voices in my own head but you know then we all have a good laugh and go on encourage people to figure out what they need to do to stop those thoughts have them practice mindfulness in threes um identify three things they hear three things they see three things they smell you get the point and breathe Immediate strategy, belly breathing, triggers that rest and digest. For adults, we can breathe in for four, hold for four, out for four. With children, you can make, you can take a little plastic, um, like a red Solo cup, and you can put streamers coming out, you know, the part that you would normally drink out of, cut a hole in the bottom. And when they get angry, they can take a big breath in and blow out the air and all the streamers fly. And we call it a dragon cup. But it helps them slow their breathing, and it's not as, you know, clinical as breathe in, hold, breathe out. Kids tend to have more fun making the dragon breather. Talk to a friend or journal. That works for some people, not for everybody. We want people to figure out what works for them. Um, Oh, gosh, Barrett has a great suggestion. Um, Balloons can be a great one for kids or for adults. And blowing bubbles. Think about you know, what you need to do to blow bubbles. If you blow bubbles really hard, they pop. So you need to inhale and slowly breathe out to get those big bubbles. That is awesome. I'm going to steal that. Um, Exercise can help when we're feeling angry because getting our heart rate up by doing physical activity, depending on what theory you use, it either tricks your brain into understanding why your heart is beating fast for a different reason or it redirects your energies however you want to think about it if you can just go out for a walk or drop and do 15 push-ups or 15 sit-ups or something it actually does help and radically accept just telling yourself 
it is what it is. And Lauren points out, you know, another great one. Obviously, I don't do a whole lot of work with kids. Pinwheels can be another great thing. You know, you blow on the pinwheels and they spin around to get that slow, deep breathing. So thank you all for suggesting those. Preventative strategies. Have people brainstorm because what works for John is not necessarily going to work for Tom or Sally or Sue or whomever. What general things can you do to prevent or minimize emotional vulnerability? Well, that means trying to do things that help you stay as happy as you can and feel empowered as you can as much as you can. So what can you do to add in the happy and the empowerment? Mentally, how can you minimize mental vulnerabilities, that negativity, which goes to what kind of positive thoughts can you have, empowering thoughts, courageous thoughts, and even radically accepting thoughts of it is what it is. Physically, what can you do to prevent or minimize vulnerabilities? And that goes back to the nutrition, the sleeping, the deep breathing, staying hydrated, not get, letting your blood sugar get too low, not over-caffeinating, and avoiding alcohol. And socially, what things can you do to prevent or minimize vulnerabilities? My husband is an introvert, and so he... If we're going to do a group thing, he prefers it to be a group of, you know, six or less, much, preferably much less. Me, I'm an extrovert. I like to do groups of, you know, 15 or more, and that causes him immense amounts of stress. It's important to know what causes you stress, um, you know, socially, so you can minimize those vulnerabilities. If you do better in smaller groups, knowing that. Can you always make that happen? No, but there are a lot of times that you can do smaller groups if that helps you. There are, you know, thinking about different people you hang around. Maybe there are certain people that you would rather not spend as much time around. When you're going to the family reunion, if Uncle Bob's there and you know he grates on your every last, last nerve, well, Uncle Bob may be at the family reunion. That's his right. So how are you going to mitigate that or prevent Uncle Bob from getting under your skin? What can you do ahead of time? What can you do when you're there so you don't have to interface as much with Uncle Bob? When you are vulnerable for some reason, you haven't had a good night's sleep, you're sick, you're in pain, you're having to deal with Uncle Bob, whatever it is, what can you do to reduce the chances that you will get angry? And that means adding in the happy, you know, taking a breaks periodically to walk outside and look at the birds or the squirrels or do something that makes you happy. Having positive mental thoughts and mantras that you can tell yourself. Taking care of yourself physically so you know that, you know, I'm doing the best I can with the energy and faculties that I have right now. And socially, what can you do? Sometimes in social situations, you can have a buddy with you that's sort of your social buffer that can help redirect the conversation or buffer you from some of those social vulnerabilities. Uh, just knowing what your vulnerabilities are and finding out, figuring out, okay, how can I deal with this? If I'm confronted with it, how can I deal with it in the best possible way? Have people review their anger log from the prior week. They're going to do anger logs every week. Identify what immediate strategies they could have used to diffuse their anger retroactively and what preventative strategies that they could have used to improve their week. And then develop a plan so this coming week that they start using those immediate strategies and they start reducing at least one or two of those vulnerabilities. Maybe they start trying to get better sleep. You know, that's always one of my big ones. Session five, 
the aggression cycle. We want to help people understand where this comes from. An episode of anger can be viewed as consisting of three phases. Escalation is when whatever it is happens and our responses, you know, we notice those physical, emotional, cognitive, social cues, our thoughts and feelings. Have them talk about in the escalation phase, what can you do? What immediate strategies can you use when you notice that your personal anger cues are starting to come up to the surface? What can you do? Excuse yourself, take a walk, take a breath. What are you going to do? The explosion phase is phase two, and this is when the verbal or physical aggression urges come up and people start acting out. They may yell, they may, hopefully they don't punch anything, but whatever they do, the verbal and physical aggression, we want them, people to start being able to stop when they start having those hostile thoughts and feelings. We want them to be able to pause and evaluate what they can do when they have the urge to be aggressive. You can talk about urge surfing. You can talk about any of those techniques for tolerating distress um, so they can get past that immediate urge to be aggressive. And then post-explosion is when people experience the negative consequences from their anger outburst. Emotionally, they may feel guilty that they hurt somebody's feelings or scared someone. Cognitively, they may think of themselves poorly. They may, you know, have self-deprecating types of thoughts. There can be legal, social, and physical consequences from it. As y'all pointed out earlier, anger is exhausting, and anger explosions are even more exhausting, because think about how much energy it takes for an explosion. Have people review their anger log from the past week and identify the event that got them the most angry or had the most negative consequences and identify what they could have done during the escalation phase to diffuse it, what immediate strategies could they have used, and what could they have done if they got to an explosion part, what could they have done to prevent the explosion. Reminding them that hindsight's twenty twenty, and they're learning new, new skills. We're not expecting them to be perfect. We're just help, hoping that they are able to start making progress. We're aiming for progress, not perfection. I don't want them to start getting angry and beating themselves up if they're still getting angry. Cognitive distortions are unhelpful ways of perceiving things. Have people think about a time that something happened and they thought it was one way, but they turned out to be wrong. Some of the most common cognitive distortions are personalization. This is all my fault. It's all about me. This person gave me a dirty look in the hallway, so they must be angry at me or judging me in some way, and then you get angry. Or minimization of the positive, you know, focusing on the negative aspects, saying, you know, anybody could have done that, a trained monkey could have done that, instead of saying, yeah, that took a lot of effort. Have people recognize, you know, the good things that happen. When we are working with people who have anger management issues, a lot of times they don't notice the good. We want to help them start maximizing the positive. Selective abstraction means only seeing what they expect to see. So if they are in a negative mindset, they're probably only going to see majority negative. Encourage them to take a step back and look at all the facts. What are, what's somebody else's point of view? What would your colleague or your spouse or whomever, how would they describe the situation? An exaggeration of the negative or catastrophizing is looking at something and expecting the bottom to fall out. When we expect the bottom to fall out, that triggers our fight or flight response 
and if anger tends to be your go-to feeling that's going to trigger that anger response and you're going to want to fight to keep the bottom from falling out how likely is it that the bottom's going to fall out you may be bouncing around and getting all poised to fight for no reason encouraging people to not confuse possibility with probability all or nothing thinking have people find the exceptions if they say everyone does this say okay so there's no examples that you can think of of anybody who has ever not done that encourage them to look for exceptions if they get upset because they think they should be able to control this that or the other you know encourage them to identify what parts of the situation they have control over you know like right now with the with the flu going around there are certain parts of the situation people have control over every year with the flu we can get the flu shot and we can wash our hands and we can avoid being around people too close that are sneezing and coughing and snotting everywhere those are things we have control over we don't have control over which strain of the virus is going to show up this year over generalization we want to have people look at how is this situation that's making me angry right now different than other situations i've experienced in the past that were similar that were threatening you know how is this situation different how am i safe now arbitrary inference means making assumptions without having all of the information such as people feel and this is also can be called emotional reasoning a lot of times if people feel afraid of flying then they may say i feel afraid to go on a plane therefore flying must be dangerous instead of starting with the facts and then deciding whether it's a threat or not review that your anger log and identify any cognitive distortions that were in play so that's what they do session five and talk about cognitive distortions and and unhelpful thinking patterns that we've gone through that were common in their family of origin unfortunately we use these a lot session six is the a b c d e model a stands for the activating event what is it that triggered your anger c stands for the consequences you got angry b represents your beliefs about the activating event it's not the event themselves that produce feelings such as anger it's people's interpretations of those events and their beliefs about those events that trigger the emotional reaction with d we encourage people to dispute what happened what their what their beliefs are and dispute their thoughts helping them identify anything that's not accurate some of the stuff may be accurate have them identify the facts for and against their beliefs make sure they're not confusing high and low probability events and identify and address any thinking errors or cognitive distortion and e stands for evaluating their response and choosing the one that gets them closer to those people and things that are important in their life is this worth my energy okay yes i feel angry is this worth my energy to stay angry over is this worth my energy to even do anything about or do i need to just let this go what's the best way to handle it given you know my energy levels have people review their anger log identify the most intense or intense anger episode from the last week and apply the abc model have them review what they've learned up till now identifying what strategies they're currently using to become more aware of their anger cues what strategies they're using to reduce their vulnerabilities and what strategies immediate strategies they're using to deal with their anger to prevent it from escalating in session seven they learn about assertiveness the basic message of aggression is that my feelings thoughts and beliefs are very important and your feelings thoughts and beliefs are not the basic message of passivity 
is that your feelings, thoughts, and beliefs are very important, but mine are not. The basic message of assertiveness, and guess what, is both of our feelings, thoughts, and beliefs are important. So we want to create in assertiveness, we try to approach situations to create a win-win and embrace dialectics. People can share opposing views. Just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean I have to get angry with you, doesn't mean you're a threat to me. It just means we have different opinions. You like the color brown and I like the color purple. It is what it is. Talk about some of the advantages of acting assertively when trying to resolve conflicts, but also talk about some of the drawbacks of assertiveness. Number one, it's harder. Number two, they're not going to get their own way all the time. You know, you know, really address those because we want to talk about all the reasons they might not want to practice this behavior in order to try to address those issues and make it more, make assertiveness more appealing to them. In conflict resolution, and I usually hand that give this out as a handout, identify the problem, identify the cues, identify the specific impact of the problem, owning your own feelings, beliefs, and emotions. I felt that this, or I thought that this was going on, and it caused me to feel this way, you know, owning what happened instead of saying, you made me angry, saying, when you didn't call and you were running late, I got angry or I got stressed because I thought that you were dead in a ditch somewhere or something. You know, hopefully that's not what you thought, but you get the point. Part four is deciding whether to resolve the conflict. Some conflicts, you know, it's just start thinking about it and you're like, you know what? It's not even, there's nothing there. I'm, I'm getting upset over something that's not even an issue. And number five is addressing and resolving the conflict as needed and talking with people about, you know, what are some common conflicts that you encounter with your roommates, with your spouse, with your kids, with your boss, whomever, and how could you create a win-win in those situations? Have them review their anger logs, apply the conflict resolution model, and discuss strategies that they're currently using for anger management that seem to be helping. In session eight, we learn a lot about how to interpret events and cope with distress by observing our family. Have people talk about how anger was expressed in their family while they were growing up. Because a lot of times we carry on what we learned. How did your father express anger? How did your mother express anger? Were you ever threatened with or exposed to violence? What other emotions such as happiness and sadness were expressed in your family. Some families, anger is their go-to emotion. Was emotional expression limited to feelings of anger and frustration, or were many different kinds of emotions expressed? And finally, if you're working with somebody from an addicted family, talking about what role did you take in your family? And you can look up online the different roles in the addicted family, the hero, the rescuer, the victim, the wallflower, and the scapegoat. What messages did you receive about your father and men in general from your family? What messages did you see, receive about your mother and women in general? Did you feel accepted and loved or like you couldn't do anything right and you were constantly ha having to try to earn validation? How did your family deal with failure? And are your negative tapes prompting anger because you're hearing criticism constantly in your mind? What feelings, thoughts, and behaviors carry over into your relationships today? In session nine, you go through the anger myths. Using what you've learned, dispute the following anger myths. Anger is inherited. Anger automatically leads to aggression. You must be aggressive to get what you want. Venting anger is always desirable. Anger is a negative emotion. 
anger is all in your head. Venting or ignoring your anger makes it go away. And men are angrier than women. So those are the nine anger myths that you would talk about in your group. And this is kind of wrapping up everything that you've been talking about. Anger is a natural emotion. It's designed to alert people that there might be a problem. When people are vulnerable or learn maladaptive ways of dealing with anger or simply never learned healthy coping skills, they can experience anger management issues. Excessive anger negatively impacts people emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, occupationally, legally, and spiritually. Effective anger management involves preventing vulnerabilities, being aware of and working on sensitive areas or threat areas that could trigger anger feelings, preventing anger whenever possible, and developing a repertoire of immediate coping responses to deal with anger when it starts to occur. Are there any questions? I appreciate you all being here with me today, and I will see you next week. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.